0: Hi and welcome to Academics of PA. My name is Bruce McDonald and this week I have with me Kim Wiley from the University of Florida and Sarah Young from the University of North Georgia. Ladies, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: For this episode we are talking about a little bit of a trickier subject. We are talking about sexual misconduct in the universities. If It's a topic that gets talked about quite a bit when we talk about undergrads and what they might experience during their undergraduate careers. But we never really talk about it very much from the context of faculty. So I wonder if a good place to start this conversation is by asking what sexual misconduct is when it comes to faculty members and what it is in the context of their relationships with their students.
2: Sexual misconduct could include a range of behaviors. Think about in the classroom, sexist jokes, sexual harassment. Um, between the the faculty member and the student or students. Um, It could be privately in offices during advisement, whether it's dissertation advisement or um, supervision of graduate assistants. Um, We see it at conferences between faculty and student, faculty and students coming from the same university or different universities where the faculty take advantage of students or engage with students in ways that make the students uncomfortable, ways that they don't like, but don't feel comfortable pushing back or saying no. Um, And then we see this all the way up to sexual assault. So it includes a wide range of behaviors. In these circumstances, the students have to continue engaging with the faculty member if they oversee their assistantship or their their advisor, or if they're grading them in the classroom. Um, If it's a faculty member from another university and they run into them at conferences, they're gonna see them every year. So, you know, we see students who don't go to the conferences to avoid these faculty members' um, advances, their unwanted advances.
0: There's a question in my head. I'm trying to think of the best way to ask the question. You had kind of mentioned the power dynamic between the faculty member and students as being kind of a core aspect of that power dynamic that when you have the faculty member kind of be there, they have more control, more power over the student.
1: I'll add to that too that, you know, what what Kim is essentially describing is what Prince calls systemic intersectionality, which basically explains how one group suffers from an inequality because of the relational or reflective power. That they have to one another. And that's uh, probably more apparent in a professor and major advisor relationship than in just about any other type of relationship, in my opinion, because it's one of the few times in your entire professional career that one person can essentially control or have a significant influence over the entire trajectory of your career. And you have to think about it in the context of what we as PhDs have put into getting to that point, you know, of the graduates within the political science and public administration fields, about 35% have trouble finding employment in general. And you've got, you know, on average $30,000 of debt in graduate or undergraduate educational debt. You know, so you've got this big concern about, I have debt to pay back. I have to, you know, I have an unequal dependence on this person that I um, am responsible to and in some context. And then I'm, you know, I'm facing an incredibly tough job market. And so that's on top of that, you add in dissertation and all of the different components of a, a Ph.D. program. And it, it's a very overwhelming feeling, I think, for students to be put in a position that they are um, facing sexual misconduct by the faculty member and ultimately feel like they might have no recourse as a result. And so that is, that's a, a horrible position to, to be in.
2: I would add on another layer of complexity for students coming from another country who are dependent on their supervisors for their visa um, and learning a new culture here in the United States and what's appropriate behavior, not just of the faculty member, but of the student to respond um, and push back. And there's just another layer of dependency when the visa comes into play.
1: Well, I I think that what Kim is saying is that ultimately international graduate students are even more vulnerable. Um, And this is you know, because of the different components that are tied to F1 visas and the stringent requirements that they are required to meet in order to maintain the F1 visa, or and the grant funding that that sometimes is used to sponsor international graduate students to come over, and that there's little oversight um, in terms of that grant funding for at that for the graduate student level. Um, and then on top of that, they're trying to Essentially, decipher cultural differences, and about seventy percent of our communication happens nonverbally. And so, on top of trying to maybe translate verbal communication, they're trying to understand the cultural differences in translating the nonverbal communication. So it's a very, and I think that that in international graduate students and the vulnerability they have to sexual misconduct is not something that we've heard much about in talking about sexual misconduct and sexual harassment in academia.
0: Is there any idea in terms of how prevalent sexual misconduct in academia actually is?
1: Um there it's hard to tell because about 70 to 75 percent of women that experience some sort of sexual harassment don't report. Um, A recent study by the uh, it was Kendra et al. It was the Association of American Universities um, in 2019 found that about 13% of female students have experienced sexual harassment by a faculty member. Um, but that number is probably far lower than what actually occurs because most people, most people don't report when it happens to them. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I, I have experienced and witnessed sexual misconduct and I've not reported it because of all of the implications of, of reporting it and being fearful of a gradu- as a graduate student of what might happen to you.
0: And I'm, I'm thinking, so when I got my first academic job in South Bend, and there's a whole series of New York Times and CNN articles and everything else that came out about this, there was a professor in the grad school who was a full-tenured professor. They fired and got rid of him because he was telling people in the class, if you wore a short skirt, he'd give you an A. This had evidently been going on for years, and we everybody was kind of shocked that it had been going on that long and it had never come out. Uh, but the reason is it was a class in law, and he had had everybody sign a non-disclosure at the beginning of the semester, so they thought that they weren't allowed to actually tell anybody.
2: The reporting mechanisms are sometimes confusing or unclear. The student may not know who to, who to report to, or the faculty member, uh, maybe that's overheard or ever seen something that's happened. The reporting mechanisms get confusing. And this is also where we see uh, people leaving academia. They've experienced sexual assault and uh, their role as a student at the university, and um, they may choose to leave. So we're seeing excellent talent, wonderful scholars exiting the university system to avoid the harassment and sexual misconduct while, while the perpetrator remains on campus pursuing their professional and personal life?
1: I'll add to that that I think a lot of that is that there's a lack of policy that protects students um, and, and complainants that file in the case of having experienced it and in the case of having witnessed it to another, happen to another student you know, there's a fear of what what could happen. And that's because we have a lack of policy. You know, we have 23 federal whistleblower statutes and not a single one pertains to higher education. And we have Title IX, which has its own issues that I'll get into in just a moment. But whistleblowing policies and the protections that are provided under whistleblowing policies are not immediately triggered by a Title IX complaint. So a lot of a lot of times you have to file a separate whistleblower report um, in order to have any level of protection against you. And then recently, as recently as August 14th of 2020, there were significant changes made to the Title IX policies that are in place that really increase the protection of the accused, um, which ultimately creates additional challenges for victims and I fear is going to disproportionately affect faculty sexual misconduct and students' willingness to to report it because they, there, it, it ultimately increases the protections that are there for, for the perpetrator, um, and in that case, it, it's the faculty member who already has a lot of protections in place because of the imbalance of power and the systemic intersectionality that occurs.
0: It, it, this is one of those areas where when I'm, I'm thinking of questions. I'm like, no, that's not a good way to phrase that. <laughs> I tend to stick my foot in my mouth more often than I ever should, and this is an area I definitely want to make sure I don't do that.
2: We struggle to ask questions and talk about sexual misconduct because we don't talk about it enough. We don't have the language. We don't use it regularly enough. This is a problem throughout society. Uh, When I used to do domestic violence advocacy work, people were more comfortable talking about domestic violence than they were sexual assault or sexual misconduct. People just don't like to talk about it. And the solution is to talk about it more, at least in my opinion. We need to talk about it more so that we have the language ready to go. And we've talked about it enough that the language is familiar to us. That way students, when they come and talk to us, we can respond appropriately. And they'll see that we're comfortable talking about it. If we talk about it more often in department meetings, the language will will come and flow more freely. We'll be a lot more comfortable talking about it the more often we talk about it.
0: No, I I think the ability to talk about it is definitely one of the hard things. I mean, not that ever talking about rape is a good thing, but it is something that is talked about more often. So we have a little bit more context. We had the verbiage around kind of how to discuss, how to think. But when it comes to faculty misconduct, I think it's it's a little bit trickier because I think a lot of people kind of almost justify it away. there are definitely people within academia who their spouse was at one point their grad student, and either after that person graduated or shortly after they graduated, they got married or the relationship came out. And so I, I think, you know, we have normalized that it might be okay for faculty to be involved with grad students because maybe it's, you know, that relationship over there or they're adults, they should be able to make up their own mind. And so we've just kind of almost washed away the ability to talk about it.
2: And because we don't talk about it enough, when students do come to us, we may not know who to refer them to, but they may not know who to go to because we're silent about this topic.
0: I mean, I'm thinking of NC State. We have an ombuds office. I guess that would be the person you would start off with because if it's happening in your apartment you probably aren't comfortable talking to your department about it but i don't actually know for sure that the men would be the person to start with i really don't know who that would be
2: students report to the title IX office when a crime's been committed or some behavior that fits in the definition at the university state federal level um, when a crime is, has occurred the victim can go to the police station and meet with a victim advocate well, Who will help them through the legal process, Um, but a lot of these behaviors don't fit fit that or fulfill that threshold. Um, There's inappropriate behavior, the student's not consenting to it, yet it doesn't meet the point at which it can be referred to um, as a criminal act. And
1: I think that leads us into needing to talk about kind of the larger systemic causes that happen within universities and our institutions that um, have led us to this position. I mean, we the new Title IX changes are a great example of that. Now, you know, now victims are questioned and cross-examined by any person that um, the accused chooses. It can be any representative. And that you know, that alone, having to face cross-examination, potentially by even the perpetrator in front of, you know, what is much more now a judge and jury type situation um, could be the breaking point that that makes students not comfortable telling somebody that um, they have faced sexual misconduct. You know, on top of that, most people don't know that per Title IX, typically a single decision maker is responsible for determining the sanctions if there are substantiated findings. Um, so a decision maker has to decide on sanctions and remedies and they don't make those decisions in a vacuum, oftentimes someone from the perpetrator's academic unit, either the department head or the dean, is consulted on what they think the remedy should be. And that's problematic because that that could be a conflict of interest that's being introduced into the sanctions for somebody that committed sexual misconduct.
2: Decisions are made at higher levels with administrators, and very often victim advocates who have training and experience are, at the t- are not at the table to help um, decide what the right path for victims might be in going through the system. Um, as the university is laying out their plan, they may not bring in faculty who have this expertise or staff who have this expertise. I and mean, there's a great wealth of resource at the police department through these victim advocates They're the ones that are meeting with victims from the get-go and finding out what's going on with them, what the barriers are, and what they're experiencing. And they would offer a great resource if they were brought in in the planning um, and policy design stage.
1: University human resource policies are designated to protect the university, not the employees or the students. And ultimately, the least messy solution for the university is for the problem to just go away, that they face potential embarrassment to the university. There's potential for retaliation lawsuits. There's a very a lack of minimum sanctions. And so faculty members are, when there are cases of faculty member sexual misconduct, they're often handled very quietly. And there's, there's no real way to tell exactly who has been a serial committer of faculty sexual misconduct. It's very difficult to find out that information, which is why it's difficult to answer your first question of how pervasive it is. is this. You know, universities don't stop faculty from resigning or retiring early as a way to keep the scandal quiet. Um, in fact, a lot of universities encourage that the faculty resign or retire early if there are substantiated findings. The Title IX report will be completed, but the sanctions can't be implemented. And it, it's pretty easy for the faculty member to just jump to another institution. Um, we don't have any, many universities and many states don't have policies in place that stop the faculty from retiring early if there's a ongoing Title IX investigation going on. And that's a problem um, because it allows for continual
2: perpetuation of
1: sexual misconduct by faculty.
2: It's a real problem. We have faculty who are perpetrators who quietly leave the university and move on to another university. Um, And the receiving university doesn't know why that faculty member left or that had anything to do with sexual misconduct, and by the time the story catches up with them, additional harm has already been done.
0: Academia tends to be kind of somewhat of a small kind of close culture on its own where we, you know, you might not necessarily know everything that's going on in another department, but you have usually some idea or there's some discussion, you know, the kind of the rumor mill. And I know over the years there's been different things you know, that have passed around the stuff that went on with William Jacoby from Michigan was kind of one of these things that was talked about for years uh, before one of the faculty member came out and, you know, relayed what her experience had been. But up until that, it was always kind of this, just where people would tell their, you know, grad students and females to just stay away from that person.
2: Yeah. We have back channel conversations or whisper networks um, where women and men, but mostly women, are letting students know who to stay away from. Or when a faculty member leaves, they may call the universities where they've applied and let them know what's going on. They say, hey, this person's leaving our university because um, they're a perpetrator of s- sexual assault or sexual harassment, and they let the other university know. Uh, sometimes they do this anonymously, sometimes they use the relationships that they have and call someone at that university. Uh, But these whisper networks are working um, because we don't have frontline communication channels in place. Sarah and I have both been parts of this back channel communication. We've been given a heads up to let us know who perpetrators are at the university. Um, that's, That's something that happens all over the place, not just academia. But it's particularly egregious that it is happening in academia where we have such trusting relationships and relationships where there is such a huge uh, power differential.
0: Not that I'm happy that there is a back channel, uh, but it's definitely better than nothing. But even that opens up problems because at some point, you know, one of these people who have been this the serial offender might go, well, if I can figure out who it is, then that opens a legal challenge to that person by that, the fact that someone who's kind of being pushed back because of their behavior.
2: And women carry the burden of that risk. They risk their careers and their livelihoods calling ahead um, and stepping out to protect women. It's a risky circumstance, um, but women do that for each other and looking out for them. They carry that burden and they carry that risk.
1: And I'll add to that, you know, that there is a significant risk to the women primarily and men that make up these back channel whisper networks because, I mean, even in PA from a a decade or two ago, we had a case where there was a guy that spoke up against another faculty member and tried to, that had been found, had substantiated findings of misconduct and they were sued um, and ultimately cost them over a million dollars uh, because they there were findings that that the person um, that the person went out of turn by calling ahead and trying to alert people of this person's um, reputation. So that's a significant risk. And I'll also add there that not always. Do we know? You know, we, we like to think that we know about people's reputations and what's going on because there is a smallness, especially within PA, but we don't always. I mean, there is a, um, an ongoing case right now at one of the top 10 uh, PA programs in the United States, and the person is accused or alleged to have raped five students. And that person is still working currently at that program this minute. So, and that that hasn't come out. And and that, the reason that a lot of this doesn't come out is because a lot of times universities employ uh, non-disclosure agreements, and non-disclosure agreements um, have been kind of mischaracterized as being of the benefit to the survivor, but. In actuality, the way that they're being used as gag orders for everybody that's involved in the case keeps the survivor from ever being able to speak out against the perpetrator if they chose to. You know, if the perpetrator hurt somebody else in the future and they wanted to speak at the trial to present a pattern of behavior, if they've signed an NDA agreement with the university. As a, and are incentivized into signing that NDA agreement by a substantial settlement, um, a lot of, they don't have that choice if they've signed a, a completely closed NDA. So that, that, and that use of the NDA keeps it quiet, which is of the benefit to the university, but not of the benefit to the survivor, and it's not of the benefit to the field.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll say right now, neither of those instances have I heard of. Um, You know, I have no idea who the people are, but I'm sitting at my desk kind of, you know, one, shocked that it's something I haven't heard about, two, that it actually happened and that it hasn't come out. But, you know, if you have the NDAs and you're using those to kind of push people down or using the legal process to push the complainant down.
2: And the witnesses.
0: That's worrisome. Yeah,
1: a lot of times, you know, if there are witnesses or there are others that are that are knowledgeable about the situation, in situate in some situations, universities have threatened their employment, um, have required the witnesses to sign NDAs while the the especially while a IX investigation is going on, um, which also, if a faculty member decides to retire early or resign while a Title IX investigation is going on and everybody involved has essentially been put under a gag order by the university, it makes it that much easier for the faculty member to jump to another institution.
0: Right. Like, I I get that the back channel, that whisper network steps up, but I think part of me says we shouldn't have to rely upon a back channel in that kind of way. Yeah.
2: Everybody <laughs> <be with> you.
0: <laughs> you know, if you had your druthers thinking about how to fix this problem in you know academia that as it you know, relates back to PA and everything else, where would you start in terms of how to fix the problem or how to add accountability to what's going on?
2: There's no one particular place to start. This is a systemic problem, and it requires a systemic approach. We can't start with one singular uh, response. We have to look at this holistically. We need to look both at the association level and societal level, if we think of academia as a society. We need to address both of those levels in this larger system. And at the same time, we have to address it at the individual level. Students have to feel comfortable going to their professors for help to explain what's going on and see how they can get help in those circumstances. Um, And this is tricky with the gender inequity in academia. If we have departments that are mostly or completely men who are associate and full professors or even assistant professors as well, um, are female victims of sexual misconduct going to feel comfortable going to these male professors? So this is where gender inequity <laughs> leads to additional problems. So given that that is our current system, um, male professors, both associate and full, need to be comfortable talking about this and having being a safe space for students at the same time that, they, um, that departments address the gender inequity problem. And faculty members need to be comfortable talking to each other. This is where language comes back into play. What are we comfortable talking about? And faculty members need to be able to talk to each other, whether it's to talk about something that they've seen going on or to directly confront the sexual misconduct or the offender. At the association level, there needs to be an awareness or shared knowledge. If a perpetrator moves from one department to another, when they remain in the association, it sends a message to other members Um, Associations need to be able to have a mechanism in place to expel that uh, member. Associations need to have really clear uh, approaches at conferences. If sexual misconduct does occur, what's the association's stance? How can attendees at the conference respond? If it's a student, who do they go to? Do they go to an association board member? Do they wait till they get home to report it to... Uh, their Title IX office or do they report to local police? What if the faculty member is from another university? There needs to be really clear guidelines from the association and this isn't something that uh, we write into the code of conduct and hide somewhere. This is something that we need to talk about at conferences from the get-go on day one. As public administration and public policy scholars We tend to throw management and policy solutions at problems. This is a behavior problem. This is something we need to change in our behavior as individuals and more broadly at the societal level. We need to practice what we'll do if a student comes to us with this this problem. Practice the conversation out loud. We need to have bystander intervention techniques designed for students and faculty. We see those on campuses, different bystander Uh, intervention trainings, but they're designed for students. Um, If a student and another student are involved, what what can bystanders do? But we need to practice what bystanders can do when there's a faculty member involved. How do faculty respond? How do students respond?
1: I'll add to that that at the program level from a PA education standpoint, you know, we really need to work on having absolute no-tolerance policies, um, and we have to define what that means and what our non-negotiables are. And and this, there's bureaucracy within the university that can make this more difficult to do, but ultimately, PA is built on the ethos of accountability and transparency. It's required by our associations, yeah, ASPA's own... Um, Ethic codes, so number seven, says to promote ethical organizations. And so shouldn't we be holding ourselves as PA education programs to that same standard by making sure that we have no tolerance policies for sexual misconduct by our faculty? That's one thing that we can do immediately to try to change this culture that is allowed. And you know, we can also try to make sure that our leadership is accessible to students, both physically and emotionally if a student has a concern and they're much more likely to turn to somebody that they feel comfortable with and how, if they don't feel comfortable with, especially leadership or somebody that's in a position of power to be able to do something about it because they've never interacted with them. You know, we can try to make sure that our program leaders are in core graduate curriculum classes so that they have at least some level of interaction with most of our graduate students as possible. Also, making sure that we have an open door policy and we actually keep our doors open. You know, in one example, it was difficult to access the department leadership because you had to go through a watchdog um, of an administrative assistant whose office physically blocked. office to the department head. Um, That's going to turn, you know, if if there's a level that a student has to go through to try to tell a leader that something's going on, then it's much less likely than they're they're going to report it. So we can really perpetuate that idea of open door leadership.
2: We talked earlier about the power differential, the power relationship between major professor and student. And a protective factor here that we can employ is to diffuse that power, break down that power. Um, Yes, we have committees made up of four committee members from around the department and then an outside member, but very often students don't see those committee members until the proposal defense or the dissertation defense. So expanding mentorship to include regular interactions with all of the committee members or... More interactions with faculty in the department can help break up that power within um, that relationship between the student and the major professor. We just expand the mentorship.
1: Yeah, require. I mean, essentially required connection points, checks and balances in programs to make sure that students are interacting with somebody outside of their major professor or their even their committee members. I mean female brown bag luncheons, so that there's regular interaction is one simple, slightly simple um, solution that could be implemented to try to make sure that, that especially female graduate students feel connected to somebody else that could, they could speak to in the event that there was an issue.
2: These interventions are gonna take a lot of work. Um, these are gonna be hard. It's gonna take our time and our energy Um, It's going to be a lot of service work. Um, But this isn't something that we're going to be able to just set a rule um, or a new practice and walk away. This has been going on for a very long time, and it's going to take dedication from faculty, from leadership, from administration over a very long period of time, similarly to the way that we have to address racism in academia. So it's going to take work um, at all levels over a very long period of time.
0: One of the things that's popping into my head, Kim, that it was about behavior, not about setting up the institutions or the, you know, the rules to constrain that behavior, that we should then focus on weeding out, is probably not the best way of saying it, but how do we weed out the acceptability or the existence of that behavior in general?
2: We call it out when we see it. We don't wait and have a meeting to talk about how we're going to respond to it. We call it out when we see it. And we need to address this at conferences, and the plenaries, not just the plenary top subject matter, but in housekeeping sessions. What to do if you witness or you experience sexual harassment or some sort of sexual mis- other sexual misconduct, who do you go to? And then the association needs to have somebody on staff that's ready to receive that information and know what to do with it. We need to be comfortable talking about this at faculty meetings, like I mentioned earlier having these conversations about what we'll do and how we'll respond on a regular basis. So we have that language to talk about it. The association needs to know how to act and what to do with the information once they receive it at the conference. And we have students who go to conferences and they're harassed or approached by full professors from other universities, and then they don't return to the conference. So this full professor gets to continue going to the conference and benefiting from the conference and all of the ways that we benefit from these conferences. And the student who really needs the networking, who needs the peer review and the mentorship, they don't go back. They don't return until maybe later after, if they stay in academia, um, later once they've established a um, position, say this is a professor position, maybe they'll go back. But in the meantime, they're missing out while this full professor continues to attend. We need to be alert at our own conferences, Um, be aware of what's going on around us. Don't just be so wrapped up in our own individual conversations. You know, we have students intervening with these bystander intervention techniques on their own major professors. It shouldn't be up to the students to employ these bystander interventions to protect other students. This is where faculty um, and the associations need to step up.
0: Right. There's two things that are coming to my head. One is conferences are very much about alcohol in Mm. a lot of ways, Um, which is probably problematic. You know, when we think about or when we talk about issues of rape amongst students or anybody else, you know, the conversation is always or comes about to the culture of alcohol in a fraternity allowed that behavior to continue. Now we talk about the alcohol being a problem in lots of different situations, but we don't talk about the alcohol it might be something that contributes to the behavior or to the climate that allows that behavior to occur within academia.
2: Yes, Sarah and I talked about this. We went back and forth quite a bit about whether or not to address this in our paper There's so many reasons not to have alcohol at these events, or at least not to centralize alcohol at these events. And We have our receptions um, where free drinks are given, Um, and in these spaces, there's a number of reasons to exclude it. We have undergraduates who aren't of legal drinking age. Uh, We have uh, alcoholics who would like to attend these events but may feel like they can't attend these events. Uh, Our judgment is impaired which might make it harder for us to observe what's going on around us and intervene uh, when a student needs our help. And predators can use this space to prey on potential victims. So there's so many reasons to exclude it. So we decided to leave it out of the manuscript because it is such a hot topic, Um, but I am glad that you asked about it here in this podcast session.
1: I'm not a proponent of of making association activities dry just because I believe that we are adults and we can we can be responsible. And it's not really about trying to create constraints and limits. I think it's about changing a culture of complicity and complacency. And we have to be willing to have those hard conversations. We have to be willing to say, hey, Professor X, I think that you've had you know, maybe one too many, would you like me to walk you back to your, your hotel room? Um, We have to start holding each other accountable for being willing to change this culture of complicity and complacency and stop trying to control the environment of what allows for things like this to happen. Ultimately, we need to take a systemic approach um, using that kind of socio-ecological model of the different levels and making sure that we're changing all of the, those different components that are necessary to see big cultural
2: change happen. Because we asked ourselves, will readers throw the baby out with the bathwater if we include this?
1: Yeah, I mean, we went back and forth about a lot of things, but and I will say to your, to your question earlier about um, consensual relationships between faculty and students, that was another you know, point that Kim and I went back and forth on a lot was because some universities are starting to implement what's called sunset policies where faculty are not allowed to engage in personal relationships with students for X amount of period until until X amount of period after the student graduates. Um, Princeton has considered such, such types of policies, for example. Um, we did not include those policies Uh, in our recommendations, because we felt like ultimately the underlying issue of the culture is what needs to be addressed.
0: I'm thinking in terms of, so one of my uh, best friends from undergrad went and became a marriage and family therapist, and he was going through grad school. One of the things that they very much emphasize is the distance between the therapist and the You're in that high power dynamic position. The patient is obviously not in that high power dynamic. You know, for whatever reason, the patient comes to you. It doesn't work out as a therapist, whatever it might be. You know, there's a period of time from that last time that you've seen that patient till I believe it's two years before if you were going to start dating or start being involved with the person till you could start that process. There's similar things for medical doctors and for lawyers because that dynamic is definitely different. You know, I, I think in academia, we have that same dynamic. So having those sunset laws or sunset rules, to me, that makes perfect sense. You know, it makes calling things out easy, because there is no longer a gray area, it's now black or white.
1: I was gonna say, you might be surprised to learn that not it, not all universities even ban faculty student relationships. I mean, that's a fairly new like policy development to to ban current faculty student relationships, and not all universities policies do i can't I don't disagree with you, but it i you make a good point.
0: you, know, you might not ban all student faculty relationships, but a lot of will have the ban on they can't be your student, mm-hmm. but even then that's still you know even if it's not your student, there's still likely some kind of dynamic going on that's not necessarily the right one, you know, whether it's a a different student in the department that's working for somebody else, or even from a different department, there's still things that kind of go into that. that still kind of cross the line for me a a little bit.
2: This is one of the challenges in defining sexual misconduct. Like we talked about earlier, sexual assault uh, definitions have evolved over time. Um, Rose Corrigan writes about the criminalization of sexual assault in her book, Up Against the Wall, Rape Reform and the Failure of Success. And she talks about some of the failures along the way of the criminalization of sexual assault. You know, the rape crisis movement began back in the 1960s and 70s, um, and sexual assault began to be criminally defined, uh, yet it's been problematic because the the definition has had to evolve over time to define different relationships and who could consent in the relationship. Um, relationships like prisoners and guards have been defined. Um, people with disabilities uh, who are unable to consent, um, different uh, sexual assault laws have been you know, clarified there. You know, The definition continu- continues to expand to address more and more relationships. Until the mid 2000s, when we switch the conversation and talk more overtly about consent, about positive consent initially. Who is able to consent, who isn't? And this is where it gets tricky with the power dynamic in a major professor and student relationship. Although this is, you know, these are two adults, at what point is the power differential in these relationships so strong? Um, that the student loses the ability to consent or withdraw their consent.
0: No, no, I think that makes perfect, perfect sense. I mean, we do talk in the sexual assault kind of instance about consent and what it means for consent. Uh, There's now even apps that you can download to where you can, you know, record or have somebody sign that they are giving their consent before having any kind of sexual relationship. Uh, for college students, and there are colleges who encourage students to use those.
2: Yeah, those work when there's an equal power relationship there. It assumes the the two people in this interaction have um, similar power in the relationship. Um, Normally, you're not going to use that when there is a large uh, power differential between the two involved.
0: Yeah, but it's not the even relationships where you actually need it. You want to have but I guess if it's an uneven relationship, you're not even in a position to give the consent in the first place.
2: Yeah. that kind of tool wouldn't be a strength. um, If it's like a boss employee or major professor student relationship.
0: So given that this is a problem, we know, know that it's a problem. We need to have more conversations about it. Kind of what would be the, next step of having an open dialogue? Would it be trying to put a panel together for like a forthcoming ASPA conference? Would it be just having those individual departmental conversations? What becomes or how do we work to actually normalize this a little bit better of talking about it and saying what's right and what's wrong?
2: Yeah, the associations need to take a vocal and firm stance. It needs to be spoken aloud and written in our codes Associations from political science, public administration, public policy need to speak out. Um, Yes, scholarship's important. We need to know more about how and why this occurs, but we can't study this away. The associations are going to have to be firm and they are no tolerance stance.
1: I would add to that that our field leaders need to take a stand. And I think that is an important component to demonstrating to the PA field that this is an important topic that requires more than just scholarship at this point. You know, we as as women in public affairs and public administration, we demand more than just scholarship at this point. It's been far too long. We, our programs need to take a stand. Our journals need to take a stand. Our associations need to take a stand. And we need all of the faculty to say that they also will take
2: a stance. And by no tolerance stance, we mean that the association has to mean that. There would be no tolerance, uh, no attendance at the conference, no publication in the journal, no membership. And this person needs, these perpetrators need to be excluded. Uh, if, if we send the message to students that perpetrators are allowed to remain. What, what does that say to the students and to other potential perpetrators? Um, at the conferences, this means that the perpetrators are, you know, they're not uh, speaking on the plenary panels. They're not serving as chairs and discussants. we um, are not receiving awards from the association. We may have to be careful that this doesn't impact their students. Uh, their students' work needs to be presented. Uh, the students need to benefit from the conference and participate 100%. And so this is where the associations have to step in and make sure that the perpetrator is not included, but it's not at the same time excluding the student.
0: So I know a couple of years ago, ASPA had, at least I think it was ASPA, announced before the conference that to create a more positive environment, they were going to do things like restrict tugs. You could shake somebody's hand, but that was it. There was a couple of things involved in what they were saying. I don't remember anything else. I remember seeing the hugs as part of things that were going to be not allowed because they then either create kind of an awkward balance between people where somebody gets a hug. They don't necessarily want the hug. They feel like they have to get it. Maybe that's the starting point for more action that's going on, whatever it might have been. But I only remember ever seeing it the one year. But I also remember being at the conference that year going, there's not a lot of people enforcing it. But on the other hand, there were definitely were people who were more cognizant and aware of maybe we shouldn't hug, you know, maybe we should you know, be much more professional in kind of what we were doing. And at least for me, that was kind of a nice aspect of the conference that year. It brought up and kept the idea of, acceptability of behavior in mind. And it seemed like everything was a little bit calmer at the conference overall that year. But I don't think I've seen that pop back up. On the other hand, given that nobody's able to go to conferences right now, there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter about what people are going to do when they get to their first conference. And it's almost always either they're going to give everybody a hug or they're going to get drunk with everybody or some combination of the both. And the first thing that keeps popping up into my head is you're basically setting up a worse situation or you're reversing any movement forward that this has kind of gained in terms of adjusting behavior.
2: Yeah, those policies have good intentions. I mean, given the circumstances right now, when we get finally are allowed to go back to conferences, we're going to want to connect. There's going to be a level of intimacy that we've missed um, by being just away, connecting only through Zoom. But um, the no hug policies are... Are tough to enforce, um, and maybe kind of miss the mark a little bit. Uh, Sarah and I go to Arnova but I can't imi- imagine Ar- Arnova without uh, hugs. Um, but at the same time, there are people who don't want to engage that way, and so they need to have a way to say no and that they don't want that. I've got a, a dear friend who didn't like hugs and. She felt very firmly about it and as a hugger it was a bit of a challenge uh, not to automatically want to do that these policies can have the right intent um, but maybe not the right enforceability i will add i mean i'm a
1: hugger by nature i'm southern we hug Um, i love (laughs) to get hugged i also had a phenomenal relationship with my major advisor who was a tenured male professor and Every time I see them at a conference, I run up and I give them a hug. However, I also know that I'm, I'm now a mentor, um, to my students and I have to be mindful of how that might be perceived in terms of forced consent. So it's, it's a tight rope to walk. Um, we just have to recognize the culture of complicity and complacency and how we're representing ourselves to our students at all times.
2: We, we go back to consent. Uh, we have to have
0: you know,
2: the ability to say no. And in some circumstances, um, that's not there. Uh, we, we can't consent. Um, in other circumstances, say at a conference, The panel's going on kind of similarly to what you described with that law professor. Can the students speak up right then? Probably not. There needs to be other people in the room that can call out sexist comments or sexist jokes, feel confident and comfortable calling them out. In the moment, it's
1: really hard to do that. And so the way that we can prepare ourselves is by having language ready and having practice, having those conversations, by having had those conversations, in our departments, in our programs. And I think that will will help to m- make it a little easier when in the moment you're faced with that situation.
0: No, I think that's you're absolutely right on that. There's been instances where I've been at conferences where I, I've seen some things either on a panel or outside. Not normally, usually knowing you know the, the right words, I, I will just cope and make everything uncomfortable for everybody. Um, you know, you, you stand there and you be like, "Hey!" and interject the conversation and break up the group as a way of kind of stopping whatever it might be. But I'm I'm also okay making everybody uncomfortable.
2: That's something that we have to get comfortable with. We have to get comfortable speaking out. I mean, that's at the heart of the bystander intervention. You know, to disrupt or distract we're going to get that comfortability to say something.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I can, you know, I'm okay making people un- uncomfortable, but I'm trying to think standing there and making that group kind of break up by, you know, whatever, but is one thing, but it's still not having the conversation. So it's worth going, here's what's wrong and why it's wrong. Not just kind of causing the weirdness.
2: Yeah. Those solutions are good. Um, There are different levels of distraction and disruption. Um, So there may be an overt disruption or distraction uh, where we escort a person out of the room, but there are some that are much more subtle. I've been at conferences uh, where we're at the bar, um, either at the hotel or somewhere else, and men will sit between me and a known perpetrator. They intentionally do that. They know that this perpetrator's behavior changes, um, after they've been drinking, and so they, and then their behavior becomes inappropriate. And so these men will sit between me and that person to just uh, disrupt that um, before it even starts. And it takes all of the levels that we've talked about, this intervent- individual intervention, um, this departmental level intervention, the associations, you know, tolerance policy. It takes all of these levels, and they need to be addressed at each step, And so they can all work cohesively together. One standing on its own is not going to address this problem or solve this
0: problem. Not that I'm happy that the paper that the two of you had written that you mentioned earlier, that that was, let me rephrase that. I'm not happy that you wrote the paper. No, that still sounds bad. (laughs) Trying to think of a way to say, I'm happy that you had to write it, even though it's unfortunate that you had to write it. I think that sounds.
2: I'll address this. Um, you know, I started doing domestic violence advocacy work right out of my undergrad. Uh, for quite some time, I I worked in the domestic violence field, and I studied in academia. I studied the the rape crisis movement, the better women's movement, and yeah, it's frustrating in 2020 to still be dealing with this in academia, and. It hurts to have to do this for our own discipline as well. When um, Sarah and I were writing this paper, it, it really was sad and frustrating to have to confront our own discipline about this when um, it's, this behavior is happening on university campuses where so much research is going on about sexual assault, se- sexual misconduct, you know, the study of intimate partner violence, that research is going on there, yet it's happening right in that same space. But something had to be said, and something has to be done.
1: Academia is second only to the military for sexual misconduct, and that that's unfortunate. Our ivory tower has to has to crumble when it comes to sexual misconduct.
2: We have to address this at the societal level. If we look at academia as a society, we see sexual assault and sexual misconduct happening throughout our system. Um, we see these alcohol-fueled parties where sexual assault is occurring. We see sexual assault occurring around the you know, the sports and the tailgating parties. And we see it at all levels within our system. Before coming to academia, I used to work um, where I provided trainings for the Office of the Attorney General. I provided trainings to the victim advocates. And the victim advocates that worked at the universities around uh, the state would come to these trainings. And they would share with me that when victims came in and made reports at the police department on campus, very often these reports would get downgraded from sexual assault to assault or down to sexual harassment. And the intention was um, to reduce the overall count of sexual assaults on the campus. So it's a system-wide problem, and we can't address it just by addressing parties or just by addressing student-on-student sexual assault or just faculty-on-student sexual assault. We have to look at this larger picture and how it's ingrained in this larger system.
0: I think of any time something happens at NC State, whether it's somebody had their purse stolen from their dorm room all the way up through somebody's been shot near campus. Anything and everything we get, you know, that email blast or text blast, I, I don't know how often or frequently the behavior, you know, this kind of stuff happens on campus, but it's, it's like, well, it happens. We're, we're going to go ahead and try and downplay some of the negative side of things. Uh, if we send an email out on a Friday evening that you're probably not likely to see because it's going to get buried, yeah, there's definitely this veil behind which academia operates. That I-, I think the perception that the veil's not there comforts parents when they send their kids to the school. But I think that we then, within academia, protect the university by setting up that veil. And
1: I honestly think that it's the role of public affairs to lead the way for academia on how to address this within the field within academia as a whole i mean our we are the field that trains public servants that are are differentiated based on that publicness of our sector and which includes you know, the accountability, the transparency, the the governance, the all the different components that make public administration public. And so we have to be willing as PA to lead the way and say, this is not okay, that we are allowing this veil of secrecy to happen, especially within public universities.
0: I mean, if you think of what we teach in, PA classes, you know, we teach about HR, we teach about ethics, you know, having those difficult questions and managing the situations that arise, we teach and we prepare students to engage in the exact same kind of thing that then we aren't doing.
2: Yeah, we're giving instructions to implement these policies, but we're, we're not modeling uh, impl- implementation of these policies. We're not showing how to do it and modeling it ourselves even in our HR classes, we may not be addressing these issues, or we may not have faculty who have equipped themselves to be able to talk about sexual misconduct in terms of HR policy, implementation of that policy, you know, the same way that we do not have a good record of using these classroom spaces to talk about racism. Um, to to teach students how to address it in their workspaces um, the same way that we're not addressing sexual misconduct, I'm teaching students how to address it in their workspaces.
1: i mean our our fields principal associations for which we are preparing our students to then go and join or to strengthen this through their own scholarship um, require accountability within the organizations that make up their members. And so if we are educating the next generation of public service workforce that is going to go be members of these associations, shouldn't we also be holding ourselves to the same standards that are required by these associations? That's my my question.
0: Yeah, I think we should. I mean, you know, if you're not holding yourself to the standard in you're part of the organization, then, you know, there's a conflict right there.
2: I'm excited to see so much discussion around social equity. We're talking about it among ourselves as faculty members, and I hope that it's making its way down to all of the classrooms uh, for all the facu- faculty members that are engaged talking about it. It's really exciting to see it develop and kind of the cross-pollination there um, between faculty members, you know, all over our
0: discipline. Well, I I know I've taken up quite a bit of your time today, and I think we can keep on going probably for a super long time. I definitely want to be aware of your own uh, time constraints and everything else. So I want to thank you for coming on and talking with us today.
2: Thanks so much for uh, putting together this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much.